invite you to open to <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 8. Still in our series through the book of Nehemiah, a series that we've entitled The Faith That Moves You Forward. Taking a, a chapter at a time. This morning we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. If you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Michael. I serve as the lead pastor here at New Breed. We're so glad that you are here with us. And I, I know you just got seated, but I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. It's especially fitting as we read Nehemiah 8. And I was trying to pick out just a section to read to you, but we're going to read through the whole chapter to hear what the Lord has for us from Nehemiah chapter 8. If you don't have your Bible, it's all right. You can follow along. It should be on the screens on either side. But Nehemiah chapter 8, <clears throat> Nehemiah records this. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. And they asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. And on the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. It says, Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Masaiah stood beside him on his right. To his left was Pediah, Mishael, Malchajai, Hashan, Hash, Badanath, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book in full view of the people, since he was elevated, elevated above everyone. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with his hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. Then they knelt low and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, who were Levites, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law, translating and giving meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweets and portions of those who have nothing prepared since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy, don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drinks and portions and have a great celebration because they understood the words that were explained to them. And on the second day, the family heads of all the people, along with the priests and the Levites, assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in shelters during the festival on the seventh month. 
So they proclaimed and spread the news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hill country and bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make shelters, just as it is written. The people went out, brought back branches, they made shelters for themselves on each of their rooftops and courtyards, the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate, and the square of the Ephraim gate. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. And the Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. And there was tremendous joy. And Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first to the last. And the Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinances. And this morning, I want to preach from this idea of a faith that celebrates. Faith that celebrates. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, give us, give us understanding as we look to your word. Give us a response of reverence and worship as we hear from you. Remind us of the sacredness of this moment. God, I pray you give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Faith that celebrates. There is, there's a small Asian nation, I learned this this week, there's a small Asian nation that hosts one of the most notable celebrations in the world. The nation of Brunei, it's an island nation surrounded by Malaysia on one side and the South China Sea on the other. You might not have ever heard of Brunei. Um, but though it's a small nation with a population of about 445,000 people. It's an island of, it's an extremely wealthy nation with one of the highest standards of living in the world, and that's all thanks to this incredible gas and oil reserves. And though you may not have heard of this nation, I hadn't heard of this nation, it's actually well known, but it's mostly known by the world's elite, um, by, by celebrities, by world leaders, by people in power, and it's known because it's the place of one of the world's greatest celebrations. So each year, his, uh, His Majesty the Sultan Hassan al-Bokayah, he's now 76 years old, he throws a birthday celebration for himself. This is not a one-day party, right? Like, we're, we're having a party for my daughter. Shout out to my daughter. Today's her birthday. And my mom, wherever she is, have birthday. Today's my mom's birthday, too. Um, I give great presents. I give granddaughters on, on birthdays. <laughs> but it's not, it's not a party like that. Um, ours, we got some, there's a bouncy house in the back. They're going to be there for a few hours, the kids, and they're going to go home. That wasn't what the Sultan did. Days and days on end, sometimes weeks on end, the celebration would last. It would attract wealthy business owners, world leaders, celebrities. But his most notable birthday celebration came for his 50th birthday, so about 26 years ago. It's a celebration that lasted over two weeks. Building up to his actual birthday, the Sultan actually toured all of his provinces so that the nation could see him and get excited as it approached the time of celebration. He was, in a very real sense, building the celebration before it came. Now, when his birthday actually came, the gates of the palace were open to the public on that day. I mean, it's like frozen in real life, right? Like the gates of the palace are open. Tourists from across the globe flew to Brunei to observe and attend this grand party. Included in his, listen, as included in his 50th birthday celebration, celebration was a private concert by Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson charged $17 million for this private concert, and they paid it. 
it had a special polo match that featured Prince Charles of England as well as other princes and kings from around the world. Like they came to play polo at this dude's birthday. There's a grand buffet for about 3,000 guests who were treated with caviar and champagne. No guest left the party without empty-handed. So every guest received a minted gold medallion with the sultan's face on it. This was a two-week celebration that has actually gone down in history as one of the most expensive parties in the world. I think it's the second most expensive party that we know of, and it costed over $27 million. That sultan likes to celebrate. But it's not just the rich and the wealthy that like to celebrate. We are always looking for something to celebrate, aren't we? We are. Take, for example, how there always seems to be a new national day of something, right? January 2nd, if you missed it, was National Cream Puff Day. That's what it was. February 15th, I kid you not, is National Wisconsin Day. I know. Ladies, it's coming up June 1st, National Nail Polish Day. And in case you missed it, this past Wednesday was National Banana Day. I hope you celebrate it. Ate a banana. Listen, we are a people that like to celebrate. But this speaks to how God created us, isn't it? How God intends us to live. God is a God who designed us to be a people of joy. And an outworking of that joy is celebration. Now we know, right church, we know that sin has tainted this. But as evidenced by people's desire to celebrate, sin did not remove our pursuit of joy and our pursuit of celebration. We're wired to celebrate it. But the problem for us often comes when we celebrate the wrong things and find joy in the wrong things. Now here's what I want to contend for this morning. What I want to contend to you this morning is that a faith that is moving forward is a faith that celebrates. It's a faith that finds its joy in the Lord and as a result, it celebrates. Because hear me, one of the markers of a healthy faith is a faith that can celebrate. You and I as Christians, please hear me, we ought to be the most celebratory people that exist. We ought to be the most joyful. We are, because we are a people that actually has a reason to celebrate. Like we know what God has done for us, that he has taken us from darkness and brought us into his marvelous life, that he has taken, he's taken dead bones, dry bones, and, and breathed life into them. We have a reason to celebrate more than anybody else. So the question that we have to ask and answer this morning, the question that I want to ask and answer is, how do we cultivate a faith that actually celebrates? And Nehemiah 8 gives us some indication. Because what we see in Nehemiah 8 Watch this, is how central the word of God is to our joy and to our celebration. But in Nehemiah 8, there's actually a progression that leads to the celebration, right? We got to figure out how we get from a people weeping and mourning in verse 8 to verse 17, which says that the whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them, and the Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua of Nun until that day. And it says there was tremendous joy. What took them? From mourning to this type of celebration that had not been seen for generations. And again, there's a progression to this celebration. And it's all centered around the word of God. 
So let me try to show you this morning. Let me show you this progression, the centrality of the word of God when it comes to our celebration. This is one of those chapters where I'm sad that, we des- that I decided, I can't say we, it was my choice to take like a chapter a week because I could have preached like 10 sermons out of this chapter. So in my Bible, I've probably got like 14 points written out. I'm going to give you three of them. Try to fill in the gaps as best as I can. I'm not joking. I mean, it's, it's, it's all down the side, just point after point. But like I said, I got a kid's birthday party. That was overly loud. So let me show you how central the Word of God is to our celebration. So let's pick up again in verse 1. Before I read it again, let me say this. Chapter 8 in Nehemiah is actually ushering in a shift in the book for us so far. Because up until this point, what chapters 1 through 7 have all been about is about the physical restoration of, of, of the people of God in Jerusalem. It was about rebuilding the walls. It's about rebuilding. It's about physical restoration. And we'll see a little bit more physical restoration, but the first seven chapters are all about that. But, but the, sto- the story now switches in chapter 8. It's no longer primarily about the physical restoration of God's people. It's now about the spiritual restoration of God's people. Now, now this isn't in my sermon, but that's, that's, a, that's a sermon all by itself. That before God restores his people spiritually, he actually restores them physically. That God is not just a God who cares about the soul and the spirit, but God is a God who cares about the body as well, the physical well-being of his people. So go back to verse 1. Here's what we see in verses 1 and 2. It says, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel on the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. So now I want you to see something. This pro- progression of celebration, as we see in verse 1 and 2, it begins with a desire for the word of God. Did you catch it there in verse 1? It says, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. Listen to this. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given to Israel. Now, listen to me. I've been pastoring for a while now. I've been, I think I'm, this year will be 15 years that I've been pastoring. I've seen a lot as a pastor. Y'all wouldn't imagine some of the stuff I've seen. Experienced a lot as a pastor. You wouldn't believe some of the conversations we have in my living room with people as they're trying to work out their faith with fear and trembling. Praise God. But one thing I have yet to experience as a pastor is the people of God gathering together at some public place on their own, calling me on the phone and saying, hey, I need you to show up. We need you to show up. We need you to bring your Bible, and we just need you to teach. That's all that we need right now. But in a very real sense, right, take yourself there. This is what's happening in Nehemiah 8, right? Like Ezra isn't standing before the people saying, hey, like, I need to teach the law to y'all. Y'all need to show up at the temple, I need you to be there. No, this is the people of God gathering together and calling the scribes and the priests and the Levites and saying, we need you to bring the word of God to us. They gathered at the water gate. This wasn't at the temple. This wasn't a Sabbath day. This is the people of God gathering together on their own and declaring we need the word of God right now. And I don't want you to miss how amazing this is because you would think that the people of God would see themselves in a good spot right now. Right, you almost kind of get the sense out of them that they're like they're desperate for this, that there's a sense of desperation. But you would you would think that they would think they're good, right? Because I mean, let's take us for example. Often we think we need we need the word of God at the hospital room, but not in the birthday party, right? Like when things are going good, we don't think we need the word of God. And, and they're in a good spot. I mean, think about everything that we've talked about. They've just returned from exile. 
Like, like the people who came before them had already rebuilt the temple. The wall's now rebuilt. Protection has been placed around the city. They have people guarding them. They can go to sleep at night in peace, not worried about somebody breaking in and killing them. Life is finally starting to look good for the people of God. But even in the midst of the good, the people declare with their words and with their actions, we still need the word of God. And they model in this moment the truth that you don't just need the word of God when things are going wrong. You need the word of God all the time. You need the word of God in the depths of the valley, and you need the word of God on the mountaintop. Why? Because as Jesus says in Matthew 4, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of God, church, is our very life. It's our life. Some of you know this, right? I get it. I'm preaching to the choir. Some of you have experienced this because some of you have walked through some of those seasons where the only thing you had was the promises of God found in his word. Like you could be honest with me. Some of you are here this morning because you found the word of God and the promise in it to contain life, right? There have been some nights of sorrow when all you had as you went to sleep was the promise that joy would come in the morning. Like there's been some brokenness where all you had was the promise that God was near to you in your brokenness. Y'all have had some lean months where you weren't sure you were going to make it through and you found the promise of a a providing God to be true. Some of us this morning ought to be able to testify that the word of God has been our life. It's not only been life-giving, it has been life-sustaining. And the people of God in Nehemiah 8 understood the necessity of the word of God, not just in the hard moments, but even when everything was going well. But we see even more of their desire for the word of God and how they viewed the word of God as we walk through the next few verses, right? They understood the weight of the words of God. So, so follow with me here, verses two and three. It says, on the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra, he, I, I hit the wrong button. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was Facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So pay attention to this. This wasn't a short Bible study. Right? This wasn't, a nine, this wasn't an 11 a.m. to a 12.30 p.m. church service. They gathered and listened to nothing but Ezra read the law for hours on end. I mean, I just say it. Some of y'all upset if we hit the 45-minute mark. Like, we got to go. We got to go. Some of you, if you're honest, like, we finished singing. You're like, that's good enough for me. Like, let's, let's call it a day. But it's not the case for the people of God in Nehemiah 8. They were hungry for the word of God. They stay for hours to listen to the word of God. And I, and I just got to say this. As a pastor who loves you, we need to adopt this posture towards the word. Like, I'm not calling anybody out. I'm, I'm not trying to, but I know that even in a room this size, we got a lot of people out, but I'll still say it. In a room this size, I know for sure that for some of you, this morning will be the only time you sit under the Word of God until next Sunday. That you won't open your Bible one time this week. And I'm not trying to condemn you, I'm just trying to tell you it's not enough. Like, because we are living in a world that is inundating you with ideas and with worldviews and with how you should think and with how you should live. And if the only time you go to the word of God for direction is on Sunday morning, the world's going to win in your life every week. Because if the word of God is what it says it is, 
right? If, as Psalm 119, 105 says, it is our guide. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If, as Proverbs 35 says, if it is tested and true, right? Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. If, as John 17, 17 says, it is truth, right? Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. If it is eternal, as Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. If, as Isaiah 55, 11 says, the word of God never fails. So the word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. If it is our defense, as Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping the word. If it is our salvation, as John 1:14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. If the Bible is what it says it is, then we surely need it for more than 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. And for the people of God in Nehemiah 8, they were content to hear the word for hours. But notice this. In verse 4, it says, The scribe Ezra stood on a wooden platform made for this purpose. Then he lists the Levites. He said the Levites stood beside him on his right, some to his left. They were there as he's reading the word of God. But this is significant, right? Because this physical picture teaches us a spiritual truth about how the people viewed the word of God. Notice the location of the word. Come on, track with me. It wasn't level with the people. It wasn't beside them. It wasn't below them. It was intentionally elevated above them. And this picture reveals how they viewed the word of God. It was something that had authority over them. The word of God was not level with them. It did not hold, their words did not hold as much weight as the Bible's words. It was not below them. The word of God was not subject to the authority of men and women. Rather, the word of God was elevated above them. And oh, church, how we need to get this. A proper desire for the word is not a desire that says, I want to go to the word of God to justify what I'm already doing. A proper desire for the word doesn't say, I want the word of God to support the conclusions that I've already come to. A proper desire for the word is not a desire that makes the word of God second to the culture of the day or what is politically expedient. A proper desire for the word recognizes the authority of the word and the willingness to place oneself under that authority. Here it is, even if you don't like what the word has to say to you. And I know for some of y'all, right, like, it's a great church. I love pastoring. Y'all are super sanctified. I get it. I know that you're like, man, that's a given. We get it, Michael. The Bible's our authority. But I just have to remind you of this because we are living in a culture that believes its word is the final authority and everything else is below it, including the word of God. You have a culture right now that is telling you the Bible bends to what the culture says a man and a woman is. You have a culture right now that says the Bible bends, right, to what we define marriage as. You, you have a culture right now that, that, that says the Bible bends, how we understand economic prosperity. I mean, we could just run through the list, right? That we are living in a culture that the Bible bends to us, and what the people in Nehemiah 8 are showing us is no, no, the Bible bends to no one. We bend to the Bible. Like, we have churches right now that believe they have authority over the Bible, and the Bible bends to them. And, and I'm going to say it again, the Word of God will never bend to your beliefs. The word of God is the only solid ground we have to stand on that has the right and the authority to dictate our beliefs. What is good, what is right, and what is true. Right? Pa- Pastor, Pastor Michael read that this morning. Whatever is, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is worthy, whatever is just, what we think on these things. Well, how do we define those things? Well, we open the word of God and he tells us what all of those things are. And that's what we focus on. 
What what I'm trying to get you to see is, is that the word of God is a solid foundation on which to stand, and the word has authority over your life. And the people of God understood this, so Ezra stood above the people, opened the word so they could see the word. And he read the word of God to them. The people of God desired the word of God. Now, I know we're talking about a faith that celebrates, so hold on, we're, we're getting there. So first, you see this desire for the word, but second, I want you to notice this. Not only do they desire the word, but they respond to the word. And we'll see this all throughout the rest of the chapter. But, but look again right now at verses five and six. It says, Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people, since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. If you ever want to know why we say, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word, there it is right there, Nehemiah 8. They stood up. Ezra blessed the people, the great God, and with their hands lifted, all the people said, amen, amen. And then they knelt low and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, I love this because even their physical response reveals their reverence for the word of God. Notice what they do. Ezra starts reading and the people just stand in reverence for the word of God. I like how one commentator explains it when he says the people rise immediately at the opening of the scroll because they know they're about to hear the very words of a divine king. But there's more, right? As prayer and blessings are offered, the people raise their hands as a sign of worship. But then they bow low in humble worship because they understood the majesty of the word of God. They responded to the word physically because when God speaks, it demands a response from the whole person. I, mean, I, was, I don't really know fully what to do with this. Like, how do you apply this text? Right? Should we just like take the chairs out on Sunday morning? That'd be cool. <laughs> like, Make a choice. Stand up or bow low. But you ain't just going to sit there and stare at me as I preach God's word to you. I don't know what to tell you. You got to do something. This church is going to shrink real fast. I don't think that it's necessarily prescribing to us how we have to respond, but I think it is describing to us the fact that when the word of God is read, when it is brought before the people of God, if we truly are the people of God, it ought to do something to us. We stand in reverence. We bow low with our face. We've lost the bowing low before the Lord, haven't we? I mean, we've just lost some of that reverence. But what they are indicating by their physical response is they understood that as the word of God is being read, they are in the very presence of God. How do we know this? Because their response of standing and bowing in worship is the exact same response the people of God had in Exodus 30, verse 10, as the presence of God came to rest on the tent of meeting. Do you remember that? So, so, so the pillar of cloud comes and rests on the tent of meeting, showing that God's presence is there. And all the people saw, it says in Exodus 33, verse 10, all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance of the tent, and they would stand up. And then they would bow in worship, each one at the door of his tent. They are indicating with their actions here in Nehemiah 8 that they know they are in the presence of God. And it's not Ezra speaking to them. It's God speaking to them. And church, we've got to recapture. Honestly, we have to recapture the majesty and the sacredness and the weight of the word of God even in our own lives. Like for many, if we're honest, we've lost, we've lost the wonder of the fact that God speaks to us. I mean, I mean, consider the weight of that, that the God who speaks to nothing and something forms, the God who speaks and dead things come alive, like the God who speaks and sees parts and walls fall, the God who speaks and nations will crumble before him, the God who speaks and demons flee his presence, that God has spoken to you, and he does so every time you open the word. 
We have to respond to, word, to the word because, again, the word of God is life to our dry bones. I mean, that's Leviticus 18.5. Keep my statutes and ordinance. A person will live if he does them. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 4.1. Now listen, Israel, to the statutes and the ordinance I am teaching you to follow so that you may live and enter the possession of the land the God of your ancestors is giving you. It's not just the Old Testament. Go to John 8, verses 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. James 1, 21, therefore ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, here it is, which is able to save your souls. If all of this is true, then the Bible demands a response. But what I want you to see is that their response was not just physical. It was spiritual as well. So pick up with me at the end of verse 7 there. So, so the priests, it says in Nehemiah 7, or, or, or the Levites, if you will, they explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. It says they read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. And Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who are, were instructing Instructing the people said to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. But then he said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, send portions of those who have nothing prepared since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. So, so this, is, this is fascinating. I don't, I don't want you to miss this. As the word of God is explained, as the law is translated for the people to understand, the people just start weeping. They just start mourning. They are broken when the law is read. Well, why? Because they're forced to reckon with the fact that their God is a holy God and they are not a holy people. Right? They're forced to face the truth that they were in exile because they, as the people of God, failed to uphold the covenant expectation of the people of God. They are broken. In other words, the law did what the law is supposed to do. It showed them their sin. That's what Romans 3.20 tells us. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So they are broken. They are mourning. They are weeping because they understand they are in the presence of a holy God and they are not worthy. But again, notice the response of the leaders there in verses 9 and 10. It says, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Again, for all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, send portions to those who have nothing prepared since today is holy to our God. Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now this is powerful. So, so again, let me break it down. The people are weeping because they're broken over their sin. And that is a good thing. They weren't doing something wrong. The problem was not that they were weeping or mourning. But the leaders say to them, hey, now's not the time for that. Today we celebrate. Now we have to remember when this is taking place. It gives us some indication as to why they're saying this to the people. This is, as we saw in verse 2, the first day of the seventh month. 
Now that's a significant day and it's a significant month because the first day of the seventh month was historically a holy gathering and a day of rest that would begin with a trumpet sounding to remind the people to prepare for this most holy month. We see this commanded in Leviticus 23 verses 24 and 25, right? Tell the Israelites in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, they are to have a a day of complete rest, commemoration. And trumpet blast, a sacred assembly. God says you must not do any daily work, but you must present a food offering to the Lord. So watch this. In a very real sense, though it wasn't technically the Sabbath, this was a day of Sabbath rest. What's the significance of Sabbath rest? Well, it's God inviting his people into his rest. It is a reminder that God wants to be in covenant relationship with his people. It is to remember what God has done. The people of God living in the faithful deliverance of God. That's why that law was given. And so let me ask you, where are the people of God right now? They're in the land, finally, once again, that God had promised to Abraham. Why are they there? Because despite the people's sin, despite their failure to keep the covenant, God is faithful to keep his word and deliver his people from exile. But I don't want you to miss verse 10. It is so profound. It says, then he said to them, go and eat what what is rich, drink what is sweet, send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since the day is holy to to the Lord our God. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. We like that statement, don't we, in church? We say it a lot. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I just wish we'd live like that was true. So they are weeping, right? They are broken. They are mourning. And the leaders say, hey, stop weeping. Stop mourning because today we're going to celebrate. Today is a good day. But that last line, oh, the magnitude of that statement because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that there's no place for grieving and mourning. There absolutely is a place for grieving and mourning in our faith. Right, next week, chapter 9, get ready. It is literally a chapter of a national confession of being broken over sin. That's what's coming next week. There is clearly a place for mourning and for weeping. The problem is not that we're there. The problem is we stay there too long. Because here's the thing. I think we can deceive ourselves into thinking that God is most pleased with us when we are the hardest on ourselves. Anybody else? I mean, it's just me. I'll preach to myself. I I can be convinced that God is most pleased with me when I'm the hardest on myself, when I condemn myself for my sin, when I shame myself over over my sin, when I punish myself for my sin. Even this morning, I'm sitting over here praying, and I know I'm having to confess some sin, and even subconsciously in my mind, it's like, I got to make myself feel really beat up so that God will be pleased. And then I had to preach my message in about 30 seconds to myself that God is not most glorified in me when I am the hardest on myself. God is most glorified in me when I recognize my sin. I look at him and say, and still he has delivered me. He is that good. I think we believe that the most sanctified thing we can do is be a people of mourning. And again, there's a place for that. But what Nehemiah is declaring to us is that grieving our sin is important, but only to the extent that it forces us to take our eyes off of ourselves and celebrate the fact that God has delivered delivered us in spite of that. Listen to me, your strength this morning as a Christian, is not found in your mourning. It is not found in your weeping. Your strength is not found in your brokenness. Your strength is found in a joy in the Lord for who he is and what he has done, despite the fact that you are a wretched creature in need of redemption. 
Right? That's what Romans 8.1 tells us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus carried your shame so you don't have to. Jesus was condemned so you could walk in freedom. Jesus bore your grief and carried your iniquities so that you could be made right with God. That is the gospel that we believe. That all of us have fallen short. That we have missed the mark and we deserve death and hell forever. But God loves us so much that he sent Jesus and in my place condemned he stood. And I just have to believe that his condemnation on my behalf was enough. Why do I have to condemn myself? Either Jesus' death is sufficient or it's not. But if it is not sufficient, we have no hope. But if it is sufficient, then the joy of the Lord is our strength. So let me tell you, child of God, who feels the need to punish yourself for your sin this morning, Christ's death was sufficient for you. And we find joy in the Lord because of what Christ has done, because we know because of Christ, no matter what happens, not life, not death, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come, not powers, not height, not depth, not anything that God has created can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Beloved, there is nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And can I tell you the good news? There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. At this moment, you are perfectly, completely, and eternally loved by God because of what Christ has done for you. Some of us are so defeated in our faith. Right? Like we feel so condemned. We are so broken. Why is it that Christians, can we be honest, why is it that Christians are often the most disheartened people? And I wonder if maybe it's because we've gotten stuck in the morning. And we forgot the celebration. Wonder if maybe we've forgotten what it means to be a people who celebrate. Who celebrate the fact that we have experienced and are continuing to experience the deliverance of God. We celebrate the fact that that God has brought us from darkness into his marvelous light. We celebrate the fact that though our sins were like scarlet... He washed us white as snow. We celebrate the fact that God has taken our sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. We celebrate because God has done great things. All right, I got to bring this thing to a close. I'm almost done. The people desired the word. They responded to the word. But this is, this is when we really start to see the celebration come to life. All right, watch this as they begin to obey the word. So they desire the word, they respond to the word, but the celebration comes to life as they obey the word. So the people of God, right, they're told to rejoice. They're told, listen, stop mourning. Here's what we want you to do. Trade your tears for a good meal. Amen. They say, go eat. Eat the, eat the good food. Right, get, get the prime rib. I, I, saw, I saw on the internet, there's this, there's this, there's this restaurant, this nightclub, they say you haven't lived unless you bought the $1,000 steak. They bring it out in this, like, gold case, flip it open, and, like, you know, it, all right. So it's like, <laughs> hey, go, go eat that. Go eat that. Free of charge. Go eat that steak. Some of y'all are like, ah, I'm vegetarian. Well, heaven ain't for you. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he removed the veil. Eat the meat. All right, sorry. Woof. <laughs> Let's cut that out of the audio. Um, Go with me here, right? Like, eat the good food, whatever it is, right? When you have a party, what do you want to eat? Eat that. Go get that good food. Drink the sweet stuff. It ain't grape juice, right? He said, go get the good wine. 
But then they say, hey, be generous. Take that good food that you're eating, that good wine you're drinking, invite somebody to have it with you. And he said, and go and celebrate. Now watch this. So what do they do? Verse 12. Then all the people began to eat, and they began to drink, and they sent portions, and they had a great celebration because they had understood the words explained to them. They obey, but there's, there's more, right? We can, we can keep reading. Verse, verse 13, it says, then on the second day, right? So day one's over. On the second day, the family heads of all the people along with the priests and the Levites assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law again. Day two, come back tomorrow. And it says, they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in shelters during the festival of the seventh month. So they read about they read about the festival of booths. We'll get there in a second, right? It says, so then what did they do? So they proclaimed and spread this news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, go out in the hill country, bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make shelters just as it is written. It says, the people went out, brought back branches, made shelters for themselves on each of their rooftops and courtyards, the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate and the square of the Ephraim gate. So, so, so here's what's going on, right? So like day one's coming to a close. They, they, they understand what's taking place. They mourn. They're broken as the law is read. But then they, they're explained the law and they're explained God's deliverance. And so they say, hey, stop weeping. Stop mourning. Go celebrate. They're told to go eat, drink, give portions, have a good time. So what do they do? It's not inconsequential. They obey. They eat, drink, give portions. They have a good time. But then day two rolls around, right? And so instead of all the people gathering together, the heads of the family go, the ones who are to instruct. And they say, man, Ezra, teach us some more. And so Ezra pulls out the law. He starts reading some more. And it's likely they got to Leviticus 23 because that's the only identification of the Feast of Booths that actually talks about going and getting specific types of branches. So I love this. So Ezra's reading this and say, hey, if you're the people of God, you're going to celebrate the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Shelters, the Feast of Tabernacles, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so he's like, and this is what the people of God are supposed to do. They're supposed to, go get, supposed to go get some leaves, some branches, specific ones, and they build shelters with it, and they live in it. Why? Because this is a time of remembrance for when the people of God were in the wilderness, and yet God provided for them. And so what do they do? Well, hold on. Let's go tell everybody about this and do what God has told us to do. Let's go get the branches. Let's build the shelters, and let's live in them, and let's remember what God has done. During this festival, right, again, they gathered the branches, built booths in which to live for the entire span of the festival. And these acts were meant to remind them of time spent wandering in the desert, to remind them of God's faithfulness. So by doing this, they are doing two things. The people of God in Nehemiah 8 are doing two things. First, they are simply obeying God's law. That's a good thing. God says do it, they did it. They are obeying the law. They are celebrating what God has done. They are remembering his deliverance. But second, they are identifying themselves as the people of God and as the people of covenant. Well, how are they doing this? Don't miss this. Because the people of God were supposed to celebrate this. And they said, we're the people of God. Let's actually act like the people of God and obey the God that we claim to serve. So don't miss this. Their obedience is what defines them as the people of God. And so watch this as they celebrate. So they're doing what God has told them to do. They are being obedient and something amazing happens. The whole community that had returned from exile, verse 17, made shelters and lived in them. And the Israelites had not celebrated like this 
from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. And there was tremendous joy. Do not miss this. So where does this joy come from? Obedience. And please hear me. We often get this so backwards, church. We try to celebrate ourselves into obedience. Don't we? Let me just get myself excited about God, then I'll do what he says. Right, let me get myself excited about his word, and then I'll do what he says, then I'll be obedient. Like We try to celebrate ourselves into obedience. But watch this. The people of God come at it the opposite way. Rather than trying to force themselves to be obedient through celebration, they celebrate because they are obedient. And like the people of God, church, our obedience to the word of God is what defines us as the people of God. And as we are obedient, there is a joy that can lead to celebration. Before we even came out for worship, I had the worship team back. I gave them, I told them I'm giving them a 30-second version of a 45-minute sermon. I said, one of the things I want to remind you of is you might not feel like going up there and singing and worshiping this morning. But be obedient and watch if God doesn't take that obedience and turn it into celebration for you. Watch if God does not cultivate the joy. I don't know why we think we have to cultivate the joy on our own. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Let me tell you what that means. You can't produce it on your own, but God can. And the spirit that indwells you can. Well, how does the spirit work? Well, he takes the word and applies it to him. As we are obedient to pursue the things of God, God is faithful to do what he has promised to do. God will cultivate joy in your life for you. You joyless right now? Great. Don't try to force yourself to be happy. Go be obedient and see if God doesn't do a work that only he can do. Because here's what I've come to know. You might not like some of the things of God. You might think, man, God gives us this list of rules because he just doesn't want us to do the things that are fun. And he just he wants us to do these things that are boring, right? Like there are, I'd rather be drinking mimosas on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock with my friends and being at church. But he said, go to church. I got to do it. And so, but here's what I've come to know as I've walked with Jesus. Sometimes as I'm obedient to the things that don't make sense to me, I find that it's the best thing possible. I come to see that my God actually is a God who cares about my good and my flourishing. And so as I'm a be obedient, even to some of the things I don't fully understand, the Spirit does what the Spirit does and produces a joy in me because God has been so good that he, he looks out for my best interest even when I don't look out for his. He is faithful like that. And obedience can be the catalyst for joy and celebration. So let's go back to what we said earlier. If, in fact, we are a people who can be the most downhearted, discouraged, we are always frustrated or always angry, maybe the problem isn't that we need to focus on celebration. Maybe there's some areas in our life where we need to focus on obedience. And put God to the test and see if what he has isn't best for you. People like Nehemiah 8, the people of God, make their status known through their obedience. And our obedience to the word is what defines us as the people of God. And as we are obedient, there is a joy that leads to celebration. So when we talk about a faith that celebrates, we're talking about a faith that is centered around the word, not just that we have reverence for the word, not just that we respect the word, but a faith that desires the word, that responds to the word, and a faith that obeys the word. And again, watch this. As we obey, we will come to find out that God is not a God who simply wants to give us a bunch of rules. God is not a God who wants to keep us from any good thing. Our God is a God who delivers. And he calls us to the things that are for our good and for our flourishing. And here's the amazing thing. As we are obedient to God, by the power of the Spirit, 
that same spirit will produce within us a joy that is present in any circumstance. It'll be present when the bottom falls out. It'll be present on the mountaintop because it is a joy that doesn't depend on circumstances. And that joy in the Lord will be our strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, help us to be a people that's marked by joy and celebration. But remind us, Lord, that if we are going to be a people that celebrate, we have to be a people that obey. And if we're going to obey, then we actually have to know what the word says. And in order to know what the word says, we have to desire it. So maybe that's the prayer this morning. God, maybe just start at the beginning with us. Give us a desire for the word. Help us to see that your word is life. Not just life-giving, but it is life-sustaining. And then as we desire the word, help us to understand as the people understood and respond as the people responded. And then help us to obey. And God, we are believing because you are so faithful that you will turn that obedience into joy, which will then be our strength. Strength to stand when everything around us gives in. Strength to hold on to you when we are tempted to let go for the things of the world. A strength that will see us through by your power to the end. So may we be a people that celebrate. In Jesus' name. Amen.